welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 25 of the Madden America podcast. This week, my guest is Chris Hansen. Chris started working in New Zealand as an activist after a psychiatric hospitalization 20 years ago. She has provided advice and media comment locally, regionally and nationally, including work with the New Zealand Mental Health Commission and Ministry of Health. She was a member of the New Zealand delegation to the United Nations for the development of the Convention for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, as well as working as a board member for the World Network of Users and Survivors of Psychiatry. For the past 12 years, she has worked with Sherry Mead developing intentional peer support and is currently in the role of director. In this interview, we talk about Chris's personal experiences of the mental health system and how intentional peer support approaches contrast with mainstream psychiatry. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for chatting with me for the Madden America podcast. To begin, I wanted to ask about you and your own experiences of the mental health system, and then what led you into the peer support movement? Well, needless to say, it was my own experience of getting locked up and ending up on the sharp end of the needle. And what happened for me was that I lost so much. It just had such a pivotal effect in my life. And a hospitalization that was just over a month long ended up in me losing my job, all my friends. I ended up on benefits for a number of years. One of my children ended up living with their father, and I ended up having to go to the food bank and uh, and getting charity help, and I I was really angry, and uh, anger, I think, is a good motivator, and so I started getting involved in activism, reincarnated myself as a bit of an activist from hell, and I'd also discovered that the people who uh, I really connected with and really inspired me at that time were my fellow inpatients who sat alongside me in the smoking room where I took up smoking uh, because that's really where the best conversations were. So it just was a complete kind of pivotal point or cutoff point in my life. It was like uh, a big tornado had come in and just flattened everything as I knew it. We call that crisis as opportunity in our training, and and it really was uh, an opportunity, although it didn't feel it at the time. So I really changed my way of seeing things, and um, the irony of it is that I was working as a clinician and a manager in a mental health system when I got locked up. So it was just a huge change in perspective and when I really was unable to get my job back they they essentially got rid of me I decided that uh, I didn't ever actually want to work on that side again I didn't want to be uh, one of the people who were paid to be an expert so that was a just a big sea change for me in my life and I also realized that it wasn't what had been what was going on in my head (laughs) Um, my experience of madness if you want to call it that uh, really was the crisis it was 
the trauma of getting locked up and the house of cards falling down, the losses um, that just happened one after another as a result of that, uh, that was absolutely devastating. And so I just vowed that I was going to work to try and change that. And I wanted to work alongside the people who had genuinely given me hope and support and resources and been there. So uh, that's really uh, how I got there originally. And Chris, as you were recovering from the traumatic experiences that you had while you were forcibly treated and medicated, was getting involved in the peer support movement part of your recovery? Absolutely it was. So there was a peer movement that I knew about when I got locked up. And some of those people reached out to me uh, when I was in the hospital. And then I built relationships with them uh, when I when I got out. Uh, so that really was uh, kind of uh, the vehicle that launched me forward and uh, gave me the hope and the inspiration and the desire to do something different and to keep going, basically. So uh, that was huge in my life. And I did some uh, advisory work. I did work locally, regionally, and nationally, uh, helping to advise mental health services, write mental health plans, started doing some media work. So I would become, I, I for a, a while in New Zealand, was a person who the local or national media could call when there was a uh, a headline involving somebody who was deemed to be mentally ill. So I, I did that. And I started doing some human rights work um, as well. And that really was uh, very much a part of my own recovery, and it's really how I got involved in intentional peer support. It was a very important part of moving forward for me at that time. One of the things that I became very involved in was... Uh, advocacy work uh, around eliminating forced treatment, acknowledging that it's traumatic, that it's a violation of human rights, and that we need to be really actively stating that. Uh, and in the process of that, I uh, ended up uh, doing some work at the United Nations around the Convention for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And I was a member of the New Zealand delegation. I was also a member of uh, the World Network of Users and Survivors of Psychiatry. I was on their board. And it struck me at the time that if we're going to be advocating against forced treatment, if we're going to be uh, looking to abolish forced treatment, there's a really important step uh, that has to happen, and that is finding alternatives that work. And saying this is what we need to do instead. And so I started to research what some of those alternatives were. I was particularly interested in alternatives that involved people who had used mental health services, users and survivors of psychiatry or peers or consumers, or in New Zealand we call them uh, sometimes tangata whaiora or tangata motuhaki. And uh, so intentional peer support stood out head and shoulders above 
all of the other options that I, I found uh, because it really questioned the whole notion of mental illness and and started to deconstruct the way we see people and choose to take control of them because we, we see them as, as broken or other or, or needing help. So uh, that's how I became involved with intentional peer support. Thank you. And Chris, can you tell me more about what intentional peer support does and the kind of activities you get involved in? So intentional peer support really emerged uh, from Sherry Mead, who was the uh, original creator uh, and I happened to be married to. And she had her own experiences of going in and out of hospitals both as a teenager and then uh, in her early 30s as a single parent with with kids and wanted to find uh, alternatives that really would work for her. And so she set up the first fully peer-run respite in the world and uh, then wrote about intentional peer support uh, because she was doing some master's and PhD studies and uh, pulling on a lot of academic resources very much uh, rooted in dialogic practices, narrative practices, but also pulled from anthropology and sociology and organisational change, social change theory, and uh, a range of other academic fields. And I think because she was writing, it lived on something in writing uh, gains a life of its own and it sort of lives forever whether you really want it to or not. So it started as a, as a single person trying to uh, survive and uh, has built and grown into an organisation that does a number of things. Firstly, we provide peer support training and we provide uh, intentional peer support training to a wide range of people, uh, not just people working in peer support, but uh, sometimes people who have used mental health services or are using or sometimes still in the hospital, uh, to clinicians, growing range of clinicians are asking for us to train them, family members, people in the disability sector, uh, corrections, police, veterans. There's just probably about 20 to 30 different population groups of people who've expressed interest in in our material. So there's peer support training. We have a number of trainings, and, and so some of what we do is we develop materials and develop curricula. We support the development of peer-run respites and there's a growing number of those around the world so sometimes that's doing some policy consultation, providing some training, providing some uh, input and resources or, or advice and we also network with wide variety of groups and sectors. We help organise, uh, we've got about 200 people who we have trained around the world to do IPS training uh, in varying iterations. So we're often supporting them, helping them, and talking with hospitals and groups. groups uh, sometimes we're doing some political advocacy work. Uh, sometimes we're you know, doing conferences. So it's training, it's supporting 
training, it's practice, it's co-reflection, which is a form of supervision. Uh, so we, we provide that to a wide range of people who both practice or teach or manage people who, are, who work in peer support or who practice peer support in varying ways. Um, and we try to practice peer support as well with one another and, and in varying settings. So that's um, a range of what we do. And uh, we're based in the United States and we have hubs or, or centres in a, a bunch of other countries as well. The other thing that we do is sometimes we're asked to write articles, contribute to organisations, documentation, policy work, help edit materials on peer support. So that's sometimes quite a time-consuming piece of, of, of what we do as well. And Chris, I wanted to talk now a little about how intentional peer support works and perhaps how it differs to mainstream psychiatric approaches. Basically, intentional peer support, um, if, you, if you want to take an academic slant, uh, takes a social constructionist perspective on uh, mental health and mental illness. And in, in everyday terms, what that means is that we, we talk about how we come to know what we know. So, so being very mindful that if I think about myself as mentally ill, uh, it's usually because somebody has told me that I am and there's uh, a bunch of criteria that somebody has set and I happen to have been um, in a certain place at a certain time where a conversation around uh, my experiences having a mental illness label has happened. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, and it really challenges the prevailing biomedical psychiatry model. We don't call ourselves anti-psychiatry. We say, and the way I explain it is, it's like biomedical psychiatry is this little room. It's like a little toilet. and uh, But it's a room, and it's a, it's a room that has a function. But most of us have been told that that's the only room that's the only place you can go to make ex uh, meaning of your experiences. And in intentional peer support, we want to take three of those walls off and say, yeah, that's a room. And look, there's a whole big world out here. There's a whole range of other ways that you can make sense of your experiences. Now, that, that, little, that room is still there, and you can still choose to go there uh, if you you know, if, if that works for you. Um, and many people do, and many of us start there. We, we're not saying we think we should completely blow up that room. We're saying it has a small and limited function. Let's think about who you are and where you want to go and how you make sense of your life. So that's one aspect. The second one that's also really important um, is that intentional peer support uh, really looks at, um, it provides a framework for thinking about how we are in relationships, how to be in relationships that, that are connected and challenge the predominant model that says that you need help. So um, uh, because that in itself is something that keeps many of us very stuck 
in our identity as a deficient, pathologized, and somebody who has problems and needs help and needs to change. And of course, you need my input because I'm an expert. And you know, if I, I'm, I'm obviously I'm being sarcastic, but that's often the uh, the inference that if if you just do the right things. You could become like me in in a peer support context, uh, in a more clinical context. I have the knowledge and I know best about what is wrong with you and what you should do to make yourself better because I know what better for you looks like. And and of course, uh, it's you know it can be patronising, insulting, and it keeps many of us stuck in this kind of sub-existence, it's, it's, it's kind of sub-citizens believing that we're not really very capable uh, for a long time and for many of us for the rest of our lives. So that, that's our intention is to, is to think about how can I be in relationships that um, where I firstly I connect and many of the relationships we have in the system don't even bother to connect. They just come in and they say, oh, hey, James, I can see uh, what's wrong with you. And what you need to do is you need to take this pill and you need to set some goals. Um, and then every time I see you, I'm going to ask you how your goals are. And if you have not met the goals that I have set for you, then you are a failure. So we really, um, we're, we're looking at actually connecting and then acknowledging that each of us have a worldview. And your worldview is um, about how come you've come to know what you know and um, is the result of the sum total of all your life experiences, as is mine. And if we're to be connected, um, we need to be able to be curious about one another acknowledge that you know we're likely to be different and also prepared to take the risk of reconnecting if we've disconnected and the third thing a third thing that is the hardest thing for um, people who have some human services training to grasp in what we we do is the notion of mutuality that it's not just about me being an expert and telling you what you should do and never disclosing anything about myself, but that the most dynamic and alive relationships that really create growth and hope and possibility are ones where we're both present and um, it's working for both of us. Um, And those relationships are the ones where anything is possible. So the, and the, the, the the analogy that, that I, I most like partly because I am a musician also, um, in a sort of moonlight as a musician, I was a musician in a previous part of my life, is of of jazz. And um, sometimes it's the difference between giving people a piece of music and saying, you've got to read it. And if you can't read it, then you're not a real musician and you've got to play it exactly the way I tell you to. And if you don't, you're a failure. Um, and you may as well pack up your instrument and go, or you can submit yourself to my tyrannical lessons for the rest of your life, and then you will be like me. As opposed to jazz, where it's this, you play, and I listen, and I respond, and we end up with this unique piece of music that will never be played again, but it's uh, a unique reflection of our interactions, and there's sort of a life and an energy into it, in it, um, 
that is a sum total of our relationship, at the risks we take, the skill we have, the mistakes we make, or even the way we cover them up, you know, and um, all of that sort of stuff. Well, I really respond to those concepts of seeing a person not a problem and talking to people on their terms about their own experiences. That must be liberating for so many people who have previously felt labelled. Absolutely. It can be liberating. It can also be the opposite because if we only do with one another what we know, we can fall into the same traps of the system. So some peer support is really about just being junior clinicians and you know falling into the same assumptions that um, that you're sick and you need me to tell you what to do and um, I'm going to encourage you to take your medication. So yes, um, when we're connected and you know we really are sort of intentionally working on a relationship that works with both for both of us, I think that is radically different and. Um, and I think it's very easy to fall back into just doing what we know because, you know, that's the only experience that we've had. And Chris, I wanted to ask, I imagine that a good percentage of a peer support specialist's time is spent helping and supporting people who have been damaged or harmed by psychiatry. And I just wondered what you felt psychiatry could learn from the peer support movement and how best psychiatry and peer support might work together or even if they can work together in future. Well, I... We do quite a lot of work with people who are working in the mainstream system, whether they be psychiatrists, case managers, social workers, nurses, managers, peer support workers who um, work in mainstream systems. So I believe they can, and I think the the changes are – sort of categorically twofold. One is a change in philosophy or the way we see one another. So uh, firstly, acknowledging that traditional, particularly coercive biomedical psychiatry causes a lot of harm and trauma. I think that is really important. Uh, Secondly, acknowledging that for us to be able to do well, any of us as human beings, we need to be seen as people rather than as deficient um, or a label or a diagnosis. So uh, acknowledging that what is currently called mental illness is a judgment and it's usually a judgment that is applied to people who who are deemed for whatever reason to be on the outer edges of the bell curve and that if you move your range of um, normality, uh, you know, you, 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 you move uh, your graph out, um, then we can all at some level be included. And, and there are many ways that people live well in some cultures and uh, in other cultures are sort of locked up. So, you know, just acknowledging that uh, I think is really important. So that's, that's the philosophical piece. The practical piece is learning to connect, learning to see the person, learning to find a way to connect, um, to listen, you know, for what their perspective is, to validate what they're going through, to acknowledge it, uh, and even 
to take the risk of personally relating to it, which is horrifying to some people and is singularly one of the most powerful things that can happen. Um, and it doesn't mean revealing your deepest, darkest, innermost secrets. It doesn't mean disclosing something that is going to put you at risk, you know, for God's sake. It, what it means is taking the risk of just acknowledging that this sounds really scary. Well, you know, I remember when my marriage broke up, um, you know, it took me a year to even be able to get up in the morning and, and not cry, as an example. That kind of human touch just breathes life into a relationship. So, you know, all of those things are very important. Learning to respond with empathy and to validate rather than to respond from fear. For example, if I say I just I just can't go on or like I just I need to end it now, um, I just can't stop thinking that dying would be a really good way forward. Instead of saying, are you still taking your medication? Have you talked to your doctor? Um, gosh, have you got a plan? Blah, 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 blah. Just to say, what well, sounds like you're in a really dark place. You know, what's going on? What's happened? Um, you know, that's a hard place to be. Um, you know, just something like that can open up a conversation about what's going on. And sometimes, most of the time, thinking about dying and death is a language of pain. It's uh, if I'm talking to you about it, I'm talking to you about it because I'm hoping that in talking to you about it, my pain may be lessened. 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm not thinking, if I tell James that I'm feeling this way, he might, I'm hoping he'll take me to the hospital. So, you know, sometimes people think that because that's what they know. That's what's, you know, happened in the past. And I, I don't want to uh, be categorical and say nobody ever wants to go to the hospital. What I am saying is if I'm telling you that I'm in a bad place, what I want to hear from you is that you hear me and, you know, that you're interested in my bad place rather than you're interested in keeping your job, which is really, in my opinion, what a traditional assessment is about. Well, certainly, Chris, I'm sure you've heard many times that people often think going into hospital might be the best thing for them, but they may then become re-traumatised and have a whole load of other problems to deal with. And once you're on that roller coaster, you almost can't get off, can you? Beautifully said. No. And so I do this whole kind of almost comedy routine with a little flowchart around suicide that talks about how in the traditional system we go through this process of saying I'm suicidal because often if I say I'm not suicidal, I get sent home and I'm in pain and I want some relief. So I learn to kind of ramp it up a bit. And to say, oh, yes, I do have a plan, and, and then I make sure that my plan sounds really, really scary. I've done this, so I, I can own this. Um, so that because I, I want to be out of pain, and then I go to the hospital, and then I'm only in the hospital until I stop saying that. So we go round and round and round. As you said, very rarely does anyone sort of say what's going on, what happened. And I either go round and round in that circle until I, I, I do end my life or 
until I find another way forward, which is, you know, what many of us talking to you have managed to do. Yeah. But it takes a sometimes it takes many many iterations of this to realize this is not actually relieving anything. It it, it might take responsibility off my plate right now. Somebody's cooking my meals. You know, my I'm not having to work or look after my kids or you know make my bed in the morning. You know, whatever it is, uh, uh, which is momentarily attractive, but then. A bit like being in a hospital bed where I don't use my legs for a month, I lose some of that ability and I come out of the hospital and I'm less capable often. And Chris, for people who may be listening who want to know more about peer support, what should they do? Well, there's many iterations of peer support. Uh, intentional peer support is, is just one of them. So peer support obviously came out of the 12-step groups, self-help movement. I mean, peer support has happened since the beginning of time, firstly, um, and it happens every day in so many uh, different ways as we meet with and support one another. So so that's, you know, that's uh, the most practical iteration. Secondly, yes, there are many, many, many versions of peer support available, whether it's uh, 12-step groups or self-help groups or support groups or whatever. And intentional peer support uh, is something that uh, there's a number of, of ways to access it. One is looking at the materials. There's a website, uh, intentionalpeersupport.org, and a lot of free materials for download there. There's there's a book that is available for purchase. There are trainings that are available uh, sporadically in various places, and there's uh, Facebook pages. That's, that's for intentional peer support. Uh, some workplaces practice it. Some state whole states in the United States um, have it as their um, mode of of peer support training. And sometimes it's finding somebody else who is also interested in it and uh, talking about it and, and working at practicing it. So um, I say it's sort of like a martial art. You can learn all about it. You can go to a five-day training about Aikido or ballet, for example. But unless you practice it um, and it's an ongoing regular practice, you know, you're not really practicing it. And I think one of the things that uh, sometimes happens is people think, oh, we'll just get a five-day training in our organization and then, you know, we've checked that box and everybody's going to be these more enlightened beings. And, uh, and you know, really they're just people who've done a five-day training and they may or may not have retained it. So, yes, uh, there's visual auditory material that is available and then there's the you know sort of the more kinesthetic real life interactive practice of actually practicing it and reflecting on it well it strikes me that once you get into peer support you never stop learning because individual experiences vary so widely right yes that's true yes and and you know it's never 
something that you're brilliant at because it's just such an ongoing learning experience it's like are you good at life you know I mean it's just sort of a rhetorical question or a koan or something you know (laughs) well Chris I just wanted to thank you and the others at Intentional Peer Support because you provide such a vital connection in allowing voices to be heard from people who have probably been denied any kind of voice whatsoever it's incredibly important what you're doing and I'm sure you all know that but it's absolutely vital Thank you so much, yes. Well, and we appreciate when people remind us of that too. Thank you. And Chris, was there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners? I I always hope when I've had the opportunity to sort of have a a brief conversation that if any people go away with anything, it's connect, connect, connect. If you've got connection, you've got sort of 90% of what you need. And most of us, when we're in distress or actually in any um, situation are looking for connection. So um, if people want to take away one little uh, little gem, it's think about how, how do you connect with somebody? And then if you've disconnected, how can you reconnect? Uh, because most of us have default settings that say, if I disconnect, uh, I just walk away. Either um, they're an asshole or I'm an asshole. I either blame myself or the other person and I don't actually consider the fact that reconnecting is always a choice it's not necessarily the best choice but it is always a choice and um, a good proportion of the time if we have the courage to do so we can reconnect at a deeper level and there's wonderful possibilities uh, available when we do that is really important thank you Chris, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to chat today. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks very much. I'm so grateful to Chris for giving up her time to talk with me for the podcast. And as a reminder, if you'd like to know more, the website is intentionalpeersupport.org. Madden America News and Updates. On Madden America, we wanted to let you know that the next webinar in our Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal Series will take place on December 12th at 2.30pm Eastern Time or 7.30pm in the UK. Psychiatrist Kelly Brogan will present on her clinical experience working with patients withdrawing from psychiatric drugs. To register, visit maddenamerica.com and use the link at the top right-hand corner of the homepage. So thank you so much for listening. Please tell your family and friends about the podcast and leave a review if you're listening via iTunes. Until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.